Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Bruce Reynolds, Gordon Goody, and the Great British Train Robbery of 1963. Now let's continue with our story about the great train robbery. While some of the female partners of the robbers probably had at least some idea of what their significant others had been involved with, upon his return home, Ronnie Biggs was faced with a very awkward conversation. In his absence, his 50-year-old brother had dropped dead of a heart attack. His wife, Charmaine, having been told by her husband that he was headed to Wilshire for a few days to help cut down some trees to obtain the 500 pounds required for the home down payment, had spent much of his absence desperately trying to locate him. So desperate, in fact, that she eventually contacted Wilshire police to try and track him down. After conducting a fairly thorough search of hospital and police records, they reported back that they couldn't find any trace of a Ronald Biggs. Although there is no transcript of the actual conversation between husband and wife, Biggs eventually decided to fess up and explain that he had not gotten the 500-pound down payment and had not been cutting down trees. He probably realized he had little choice standing in his doorway holding a suitcase holding well over 100,000 pounds in banknotes. The specific amount has never been determined. Biggs claiming he got about 140,000, his wife saying he got 160,000, and that some of that money was meant for Pop, who actually never got paid. It was surprising that Biggs had been paid anywhere close to a full share. His main responsibility to recruit a competent train driver, an abject failure, but the rationale of the gang was probably that if they stiffed anyone, it would highly motivate such an individual to head straight to the police, especially if any reward money was involved. For the moment, despite her husband breaking his vow to go straight, Charmaine continued to stand by her man. Although Bruce Reynolds especially had always wished to pull off a truly spectacular robbery, for everyone involved in the heist, the sensation that erupted across Great Britain ultimately became a tremendous negative. With all forms of media, especially the tabloid press, devoting nonstop attention to the crime, the public's interest in the incident and the investigation bordered on the obsessive. Behind the scenes, law enforcement understood that such a large-scale operation probably originated in London and that any number of criminals and informants in that area could probably supply information about possible suspects out of spite or envy alone. Initially, high-level law enforcement devoted as much attention to this avenue of investigation as it did to actual detective work in attempting to locate the whereabouts of the criminals themselves. It is alleged that within 12 hours of the crime, police already had six names from an informant 
which included Bruce Reynolds. With that in mind, and knowing that many more criminals were involved, police also put together a list of known associates of Reynolds that certainly included Gordon Goody. Goody had been unsuccessfully tried twice for the BOAC robbery, but was never convicted, partially through the efforts of the law firm that employed Brian Field. In fact, this was when Goody initially met Field. A staggering amount of reward money was also offered. The insurance company on the hook for much of the losses ponied up 200,000 pounds, and a bank that lost money but was not insured added an additional 60,000 pounds for an amount that was more than each robber's 142,000-pound share. Between this development and the nonstop media attention, it was not surprising that information emerged merely from the public's nonstop discussion and speculation about the location of the train robber's hideout and the whereabouts of the criminals themselves. Such a situation occurred when a detective inspector of the Oxfordshire CID named Densham, during a casual conversation at his golf club on Sunday evening, August 12th, was told by a fellow club member of a farm owned by a Bernard Rickson. This man knew Rickson and knew that he had recently sold the farm for a great deal more money than it was probably worth. Although the man explained that the farm was known as Rickson's Place, it was located near the town of Brill. Densham eventually forwarded this information to the investigative headquarters at Aylesbury. Because of the sheer number of tips and information swamping the investigation, it was not until early Tuesday that Aylesbury got in touch with Sergeant Ronald Blackman of the Waddiston Police Department the largest significant force closest to Rickson's place. Blackman had never heard of it, so he phoned John Woolley, the village constable at Brill, the town adjacent to Oakley. Woolley had never heard of it either, but said he would figure out where the property was and call back. While Blackman was waiting for that follow-up, he received another call from Aylesbury that a local farmer named John Maris, who tended cows in the area, had also called in a tip about the same property adding that he had driven his tractor by the house and noticed improvised cloth curtains on all of the windows and a strange truck in one of the farm's garages. He also referred to the property by the name of Leather Slade Farm. With this information in hand, when Blackman received a return phone call from Woolley acknowledging that he had located the property on a map, the two men agreed to meet at the Brill Police Station at 10.30 a.m., Heading out on Blackman's Triumph police motorcycle, Woolley on the passenger pad, minutes later they found themselves at the gate to the farm, looking up the dirt driveway that presumably led to the farmhouse, which was not visible from the road. They had no weapons, no one to call for reinforcements, not even a radio, but they did not hesitate, perhaps not understanding the potential danger if the robbers were still there. Traversing the quarter mile to the farmhouse, the two policemen saw no evident signs of inhabitants, so they took a walk around the property adjacent to the residence. They first observed the remnants of a burn pit, which looked recent, and then examined the sheds behind the house. One contained a tarp-covered truck with crude yellow paint on its visible hood. Another contained two Land Rovers, although this particular shed was locked. Looking through the shed windows, both men quickly noticed that the Land Rovers had identical license plates. 
Making their way back to the farmhouse, they knocked on the locked front door several times, but there was no response. Taking another walk around the house, the two investigators noticed an open window on the second floor, an old door retrieved from the shed, facilitating the younger and in-shape Woolies' climb and successful entry into the home. Even in the darkness of this unlit room, he could see several sleeping bags, mattresses, and scattered newspapers. Letting Blackman in, they quickly discovered the large amount of food, provisions, and a camping stove for cooking, an obvious sign that a large group had recently occupied the property. Most importantly, they moved some boxes and sacks of food that was situated on top of the trap door that led to a crude small cellar. Woolley found some cloth bags that were stuffed with what he thought would be money, but turned out to be numerous banknote wrappers. Other bags contained more wrappers, clothing, and even a small amount of Scottish money. Clearly, this was the robber's now-abandoned hideout. Blackman told Woolley to stay behind so he could ride to a call box and phone in the news. Again, neither man seemed to take into account that the robbers might still be hiding somewhere on the premises or might return from some other location. By 11.30, Aylesbury got the information, and by 1.30, most of the top brass involved in the investigation were on site. The discovery of the farm proved to be a turning point in the investigation. Not particularly satisfied with the work put in by regional factions led by Futrell at Aylesbury, Scotland Yard Commander George Hatherell, now designated Scotland Yard Detective Superintendent Tommy Butler as the overall head of the investigation. Butler, a tenacious investigator with a formidable reputation, headed up the branch of the serious and organized crime command known as the Robbery Squad or Flying Squad. Hatherell also ordered the presence of numerous local policemen to cordon off the farm and instructed those present to disturb nothing further until expert criminologist investigators arrived on the scene. Butler immediately designated his own team of Scotland Yard detectives to assist him in the investigation. There was a mountain of evidence left behind, including open food containers, board games, clothing, and bank bags, obviously stemming from the robbery and handled by the robbers themselves. One of several controversial aspects of the robbery was the failure to properly destroy evidence, a mistake that immediately implicated several of the robbery participants and why the farm was chosen to begin with. The purchase, presence of so many people in a rural community, and isolation making escape a complicated process made, in retrospect, such a strategy a very poor choice. Most likely, such an option was chosen for a fairly simple reason, namely that many of the participants did not trust each other if, after the event, everyone scattered back to London and the eventual receipt of their share. But, what if whoever had the money was arrested, or worse, refused to pay up? Better in the immediate aftermath to have a process in which everyone could keep an eye on the money until it could be split up, and not understanding the bombshell effect the robbery would have on the public, media, and law enforcement, and believing such a remote location was undetectable, that initially seemed a far better option. Why wasn't the farmhouse destroyed, or at least thoroughly cleaned up? Years afterwards, several conspirators claimed that plans were made to torch the entire property, garages and all, 
and such a task would be simple, merely requiring several dozen liters of gasoline and a match. Gordon Goody maintained that individuals were hired for such a job, but took the money and failed to show up. And in his 1995 memoir, Bruce Reynolds claimed that this was the responsibility of Brian Field, who didn't act quickly enough. But this was an unverifiable and convenient deflection, as Field was killed in a 1979 automobile accident. Most likely, panicked by what they believed was a possibly imminent raid, the thieves fled with only a half-hearted attempt to cover their tracks, not understanding what they had left behind. They probably also hoped that any law enforcement might merely determine that the space was unoccupied and move along to the next remote farmhouse without much scrutiny. But leaving behind two automobiles, clearly visible with the same license plates, was a remarkably foolish decision that could only invite a more detailed investigation. Having pulled off the crime of the century, subsequent attempts to uphold their reputations as master criminals would not allow for an obvious explanation, that they badly bungled their plan from the outset, and once the farm proved precarious, they had no backup plan in place. Once the original plan proved defective, many of the robbers, also hampered by their lack of preparation for a suitable escape plan and evidence left behind at the farm, began to suffer immediate consequences. The first conspirator to run into serious difficulty was Roger Cordry, who induced an acquaintance to come to Oxford to help Cordry by offering to pay back a 650-pound debt to this individual, a man named William Bowl. Cordry did explain to Bowl that he had two suitcases that he needed to stash at the rental in Oxford and left those behind when Bowl claimed he had friends in Bournemouth who could help. On Saturday, the two men headed to this coastal town, but Bowl's friend had moved with no forwarding address. Still, the transient nature of this resort town played to Cordry's advantage. He had Bowl rent a three-bedroom apartment, paying a month in advance, and then put Bowl on a train back to London. The next day, Sunday, he met Bowl and his family at the train station in Oxford, Bowl telling his wife and three children that they eventually would head to the beach at Bournemouth. Cordry retrieved his luggage from his Oxford flat, including his robbery cash, and then headed to Bournemouth with the Bowl family, eventually dropping off the wife and children at the beach. After depositing his suitcases at his new rental, Cordry drove with Bowl back to a cafe. There he gave Cordry's wife, Renee, a packet wrapped in brown paper and told her to deliver it to an address which was his sister's florist shop. He also gave her 100 pounds and then drove the family to the train station, William Bowl remaining behind, subsequently claiming that he wanted to leave but that Cordry threatened him and his family. On Monday, the two went car shopping, successfully purchasing a compact Ford. They then rented a garage from a Miss Ruby Saunders, taking the garage key with them. Planning to stash his loot in automobiles in various garages, the next day Cordry had Bowl buy another automobile, this time a used van. After scouring the entire region, upon seeing an ad at a local newsstand, it was after 8 in the evening when Bowl and Cordry arrived at the home of 67-year-old Ethel Clark, at first, upon hearing that Bowl did not actually live in Bournemouth, Ms. Clark did not want to rent to him, but was persuaded by cash above the asking price and Bowl's reassurance that he would soon be moving to the area. 
but Ethel Clark, possibly because her deceased husband had been a police officer and Bowl paid her from an overly large bankroll, definitely perceived some bad vibrations from the transaction. After Bowl left with the garage key, explaining that he would return later that evening with his vehicle, she picked up the phone and called the Bournemouth Police Department. Only minutes after Bowl and Cordry returned and parked the car in the garage, a Bournemouth detective, Sergeant Davies, and a detective constable, Case, arrived at the location, and after a brief discussion with Ethel Clark, who identified the two men who were casually trying to walk away from the scene, Bowl and Cordry were quickly confronted by the officers, Davies explaining to both men that he suspected them of burglarizing some of the homes in the neighborhood. Bowl then claimed that he did not even know Cordry, a rather foolish denial, and that both the police and Ms. Clark had observed the two men conversing. Upon being informed that Davies would like to search him, Bowl physically resisted and attempted to flee. The two men were then physically restrained, handcuffed, and taken to the local police station for further questioning. Davies had no idea that Cordry was connected to the train robbery, but Bowl especially was behaving suspiciously. And when questions about what exactly they were doing with a newly purchased van, the suspects were unresponsive, Cordry refusing to say anything at all. At 10.30, Sergeant Davies, using the keys retrieved from Bowl, returned to Ms. Clark's garage and began a search of the van. In the van's interior was a suitcase, which contained a canvas bag. Upon opening the bag, a stunned Davies found a large amount of one- and five-pound banknotes, which, when counted back at the station, amounted to 56,047 pounds. Other keys led the police to other automobiles, the compact Ford and Cordry's original car. The Ford had no contraband, but six suitcases were found in the other car containing 78,982 pounds, again in small denominations. An additional 5,900 pounds were found back at Cordry's local rented flat. And when the money confiscated personally from Bowl and Cordry was included, the total amount seized came to 141,218 pounds, one shilling, and three and a half pence. Upon further questioning, Cordry admitted the money came from the train robbery, but Bowl denied having anything to do with the theft. Bournemouth police officials then informed the Aylesbury HQ that they had two men in custody who most likely were train robbers. Several investigators immediately traveled to Bournemouth, but Cordry refused to answer any questions, and Bowl continued insisting that he had nothing to do with the robbery, and his association with Cordry was the result of threats and intimidation. It did him no good. Both he and Cordry were officially arrested on August 14th on charges of robbery, conspiracy to rob, and receiving stolen property. The next day, Rene Bowl and Alfred and Florence Pilgrim, Cordry's sister and brother-in-law, were arrested for receiving stolen property, police successfully finding cash at their residence that Cordry gave to each of them. Less than a week after the train robbery's commission, already law enforcement could claim two of the conspirators in custody, although Bowl's charges were dubious and ultimately proved problematic. After the amateur Agatha Christie phone call that practically dropped two suspects into their lap, law enforcement benefited from another remarkable development when a motorcycle rider on his way to work near Dorking, Surrey, 
had to pull over because his engine began overheating. He and his co-worker decided to take a walk in the woods while the cycle cooled off. And only yards into the underbrush, they literally stumbled on three bags wrapped in polyethylene, including a briefcase. Taking a look inside, they found it was crammed with banknotes, the couple quickly running back to the road where they flagged down a passing motorist. Within minutes, dorking police were on the scene, taking custody of the three bags and finding an additional money-filled valise in the vicinity. When the cash was counted up at the police station, it totaled 100,900 pounds. Additionally, a receipt for February 1963 lodging in a German hotel made out to a Hare and Frau Field was discovered in a zip compartment of one of the suitcases. An initial interrogation of Brian Field elicited an admission that he had stayed at that hotel with his wife, but investigators knew this was not enough to successfully prosecute, even with the recovered suitcases, so they did not arrest him hoping to eventually put together an ironclad case. Although painstaking and time-consuming, forensic specialists at Leather Slade Farms were able to match fingerprints from Bruce Reynolds, Ronnie Biggs, and John Daly found on various objects at the hideout location, including a Monopoly set and a ketchup bottle. Daly and Reynolds were already on the run, but Biggs stayed put, although he was not at home when police arrived on September 4th with a search warrant. Although they didn't find anything particularly incriminating, they arrested Biggs based on the fingerprint evidence and his lack of any provable alibi, the Wilshire police having coincidentally scoured the territory looking for him and not finding any trace of him on the weekend in question. Charlie Wilson was also arrested, with little evidence, but on the assumption that any robbery involving Reynolds surely involved him as well. Police applied the same logic to Gordon Goody, detaining him, but not charging. The cagey Goody evading arrest despite a thorough questioning, although police released him on the bail condition that he officially report his whereabouts on a weekly basis. Big Jim Hussey, a career criminal, was also brought in for questioning and provided police with his fingerprints, which were not on file. During his interrogation, the prints were matched to some unidentified prints at Leather Slade Farm while he was still at Scotland Yard. He was duly arrested. When forensics also established that Brian Field's prints were present at the farm, Tommy Butler himself went to Field's home and arrested him, as well as the beard and the purchase Leonard Field, and John Weeder, the law partner in Field's firm who helped facilitate the transaction. Farm fingerprints were also responsible for the detention of Tommy Wisby, arrested on September 11th. On October 3rd, Gordon Goody reported to the police station in Putney, the closest law enforcement outpost near his mother's home where he lived. When he arrived, he was met by Tommy Butler and his second-in-command, Peter Vibart, after some initial questions about some shoes they asked Goody to identify, they began to ask specific questions about Goody's trip to Ireland, which he had always used as an alibi, claiming he was there the week of the robbery. Goody knew that he was in Ireland for part of that week, but not the actual day leading up to the robbery and the robbery itself. It was at this point he asked for his attorney, who subsequently told him to refuse to answer additional questions. Later, at trial, Goody's shoes would be produced with small amounts of yellow paint 
that allegedly came from the paint used at the farm to quickly repaint the truck used in the crime in a hurried attempt to cover their tracks. Goody always maintained afterwards that the paint was planted and he was, quote, fitted up, unquote, or framed, not denying that he was guilty of the crime, but alleging that police manufactured evidence. Such a claim from a career criminal is always dubious, but as the subsequent prosecution of William Bowl indicated, Goody's allegation over time gained a great deal of validity. On October 4, 1963, it did Goody no good. He was arrested and charged with conspiracy and robbery. The end of October brought the arrest of Robert Welch, a prominent member of the South Coast Raiders and a name several informants linked to the crime. He evaded police hiding out on a remote farm in southern England until a tip was received that he was to meet his brother at a tube stop in London on October 25th. The spot was placed under surveillance and Welch was arrested. In November, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy knocked the train robbery off of the front page. But early in December, two more arrests were reported. John Daly, implicated by fingerprints at the farm in his basement flat hiding place of he and his pregnant wife, revealed by informants, and occasional professional race car driver Roy James. James's hideout in the fashionable St. John's Wood neighborhood area was revealed via another anonymous phone tip. His arrest a little more difficult, the wiry 5-foot-4-inch James, upon hearing an unexpected knock on his front door, took off via his apartment skylight and was the subject of a rooftop chase. When he jumped to the ground, staked-out police were waiting for him and the briefcase containing over 12,000 pounds that he tossed off of the roof before he jumped. His arrest took place on the evening of December 10th. Both individuals had left their fingerprints behind at Leather Slade Farm. For the arrested conspirators in the actual train robbery, justice was swift. This group included Goody, Wilson, Wisby, Biggs, Brian Field, Welch, Hussey, Cordry, James, Daly, Leonard Field, and Bowl. All held without bail, they were conveyed from Aylesbury Prison to the Buckinghamshire County District Chambers located in Aylesbury, the county seat. Eight other defendants, mostly charged with receiving stolen property, were also present. The courtroom jammed with barristers, clerks, a massive display table of evidence, and numerous policemen all presided over by Edmund Davies, all of the wardrobe and accoutrement of a British judicial setting fully on display. It took 30 minutes just to read the charges and record pleas, the lesser defendants dismissed to be tried at a later date. Roger Cordry decided to take a plea deal, agreeing to conspiracy and receiving stolen property. He was released pending sentencing. The remaining 12 men then were to stand trial for the actual robbery itself. A jury was soon seated, and the trial began. What occurred subsequently was the longest trial in British history up to that time. It was not until March 23rd that the jury began deliberations. Along the way, there were some stunning developments. A policeman on the stand, while describing how Ronnie Biggs knew Bruce Reynolds, testified that they had met in prison, prejudicial information that could have prompted a mistrial of all of the defendants and an expensive and time-consuming retrial. Although Biggs's attorney could have demanded such a mistrial, instead he opted to request that Biggs alone deserved a separate retrial. Judge Davies agreed, 
and Biggs was separated from the other defendants. His new trial scheduled for when the current proceedings concluded. Even more sensational and quite puzzling was the ruling of Judge Davies in response to a motion filed by John Daly's attorney in which he presented the argument that the fingerprint found on a Monopoly card could have been on there when the game was brought to the farm and only proved that Daly had touched the object, but not his presence at the farm itself. Surprisingly, the judge agreed and instructed the jury that because other than the fingerprint evidence, the state had no case against Daly, he must be acquitted. The jury officially agreed, and John Daly walked out of court a free man. But if Daly was allowed to go free, what about the four men who had prints on objects retrieved from the farm? True, he was Bruce Reynolds' brother-in-law, and the game may have been plausibly used by him elsewhere. But shouldn't the same legal theory be applied in favor of the other defendants? Observers could only speculate. Daly's good fortune was to be a sharp contrast to the men he left behind. On March 26, 1964, the jury returned guilty verdicts for all 10 men. Some, like John Weeder, were merely convicted of attempting to obstruct justice, but seven of the defendants, including William Bowl, who had never even set foot on Leatherslade Farm and was certainly not present at the robbery, were convicted of robbery and conspiracy. Additionally, prosecutors claimed that a brass clock winder found in Bowles' jacket at the time of his arrest had the same traces of yellow paint found on Goody's shoes that matched yellow paint retrieved by police from the farm. Trouble was, Bowles was never at the farm, and all of the robbers knew it. Brian and Leonard Field were convicted of conspiracy. Within days, Ronnie Biggs was retried. The courtroom treated to an elaborate alibi in which Biggs was unwittingly transported to Leather Slade Farm by another man who was named but never appeared in court to vouch for him. Biggs admitted being briefly at the farm but claimed he had nothing to do with the robbery. The jury didn't buy it. On April 14th, they convicted him after only 90 minutes of deliberation. Sentencing took place on April 16th. The judge affable and good-natured during the trial was anything but during the sentencing. His first comments concerned Roger Cordry, and they were a stern admonishment that began with, you are the first to be sentenced out of 11 greedy men whom hope of gain allured. You and your co-conspirators have been convicted of complicity in one way or another of a crime in which in its impudence and enormity is the first of its kind in the country. I propose to do all in my power to ensure that it will also be the last of its kind. Your outrageous conduct constitutes an intolerable menace to the well-being of society. Let us clear out of the way any romantic notions of daredevilry. This is nothing more than a sordid crime of violence inspired by vast greed. All who have seen that nerve-shattered engine driver can have no doubt of the terrifying effect on the law-abiding citizen of a concerted assault by armed robbers. To deal with this crime leniently would be a positively evil thing. When a grave crime is committed, it calls for grave punishment, not for the purpose of mere retribution, but that others similarly tempted will be brought to the realization that crime does not pay and the game is not worth the most alluring candle. Potential criminals who might be dazzled by the enormity of the prize must be taught that the punishment they risk is proportionally greater. 
I therefore find myself faced with the unenviable task of pronouncing grave sentences. After additionally explaining that he would make an exception in Cordry's sentence because the defendant had pled guilty, he then sentenced the convicted criminal to 20 years. Shock was immediately evident within the courtroom, packed with relatives of the defendants. If Cordry was getting that much time and the judge indicated he was being less harsh with him, what did that mean for the others? It meant that they were going to get even tougher sentences. William Bowl, 24 years. Charles Wilson, 30 years. Ronnie Biggs, 30 years. James Hussey, 30 years. Tommy Wisby, 30 years. Brian and Leonard Field, who had merely helped acquire Leather Slade Farm, 25 years. Robert Welch, 30 years. Roy James, 30 years. John Weeder, who the judge even acknowledged was probably only guilty of stupidity and lack of attention, got three years. Public reaction was initially incredulity and ultimately critical. Murderers in Britain who were sentenced to life typically only served 15 years. Under British parole laws at the time, a 30-year sentence meant a minimum of at least 20 years behind bars. In the wake of the Profumo scandal, in which an upper-class member of the British cabinet, John Profumo, lied about his involvement with prostitutes and potentially jeopardized state secrets when these same prostitutes also consorted with a possible Soviet spy and the whitewash of Profumo's behavior, this was seen as the establishment meeting out different forms of justice based on class. The robbery committed against the literal British establishment was also seen as a daredevil act of rebellion and popular sentiment was with the robbers, perceived as underdogs, punished vindictively by an iconoclastic aristocracy. Perhaps as a result of this reaction, the lesser participants in the crime either had their charges dropped or received very modest sentences by comparison. This changed nothing for the actual train robbers, who were quickly conveyed to some of the harshest and most secure prisons in the British Isles. They were also confined under special conditions allowed under the Penal Code, which meted out 23-hour solitary confinement, no radio or newspapers, and allowed exercise for only one hour a day under close supervision. But, with several of the main characters still on the run and numerous developments concerning the men now behind bars, the great train robbery story refused to go away. Only four months after his incarceration, Robert Charlie Wilson was sprung from Winston Green Prison near Birmingham by a spectacular operation involving grappling irons, keys that allowed access to the restricted area that contained Wilson's cell and his cell door itself and the assault which overpowered the guard, checking on Wilson every 15 minutes. Wilson's confinement was so strict that his clothing was removed at night to hinder any escape on his part. No matter, his benefactors brought him clothes and got him to a waiting car. Total time of escape was three minutes. While Wilson subsequently claimed he was actually kidnapped and extorted of much of his train robbery proceeds, who actually organized the caper has never been verified. Wilson quickly arranged to leave the country, wound up eventually in Canada with his family. Even more spectacular and the beginning of a saga that inappropriately established him as the most notorious of the train robbers, the escape of Ronnie Biggs on July 8, 1965 from Wandsworth Prison was also a carefully choreographed event. 
Biggs and three other men ascended ladders tossed to them in the prison exercise yard, climbed on top of a truck parked just beyond the wall, and then ran to waiting automobiles. Via Paris, Biggs eventually made his way to Melbourne, Australia. His wife, rumored to have paid 10,000 pounds of robbery money to spring her husband, eventually joined him with their two children. If Biggs got lucky with this exploit, his co-conspirator James White's luck ran out almost two years after the robbery when published photographs led to his arrest in the southeastern British seaside town of Littleston where he had established an alias and was renovating boats. At the time of his arrest, he had a grand total of 7,050 pounds in his possession, all that was left of his share of the robbery. For White and the others who had evaded capture, their attempts to avoid law enforcement would involve the extortionate amounts charged to them by those who aided their ability to rent apartments or homes, the criminals themselves too well known to the public. White was practically relieved when he was caught, pled guilty, and got a sentence of 18 years. Thinking that he would eventually be caught, Bruce Reynolds decided to flee to what he believed would be a cheaper hiding place, Mexico. Also eventually joined by his wife and family, Reynolds typically had no idea how he would survive there, but always having adopted a carefree approach to life, he assumed that something would present itself. Although no one knows exactly when, his accomplice Buster Edwards joined him in Mexico. But Edwards quickly realized that he would never be able to survive in such an alien environment, so much so that he returned to Britain and turned himself in, a contact in law enforcement leading him to believe he would get a reduced sentence. Convicted quickly by a jury, Edwards did get less time than his conspirators, but a still formidable 15 years. That left three of the train robbers still on the run. Bruce Edwards, Charlie Wilson, and Ronnie Biggs. Although Detective Tommy Butler could have taken retirement, he continued working, vowing not to quit until Bruce Edwards was captured and was punished judicially. It was not his job to catch fugitives, but he remained obsessed by the participants in the train robbery. Thus, when Charlie Wilson's wife made the mistake of phoning her parents from Canada and Edwards invited his tailed brother-in-law for a Canadian visit, Butler was present on Wilson's doorstep when the robber was recaptured by a squad of Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Wilson was then transported to a newly constructed maximum security section of Her Majesty's Prison Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight. This wing, known as the Cage, held five other train robbers, including Gordon Goody. Reynolds had previously met with Wilson in Canada in an attempt to establish some sort of legitimate business, but this went nowhere, and he returned to Europe, first to the south of France and then finally to a former hideout in London. Much of his money was gone, and this dangerous maneuver was prompted by dwindling cash and a belief that he might be able to pull off some profitable crimes. Grasping that physically living in London itself was too risky, Reynolds moved again to the seaside resort town of Torquay. It didn't help. At 6 a.m. on November 8th, his son Nick answered the doorbell and was confronted by a crowd of police, led by Tommy Butler, who followed the boy as he ran to his father's bedroom. Bruce Reynolds was barely awake when the detective confronted him. Hello, Bruce. It's been a long time. Outwardly, Reynolds attempted to remain typically blasé. C'est la vie, he said as he put on his clothes before being handcuffed. 
In five years, he had gone through his share of the robbery proceeds, two million pounds in today's money. He pled guilty, but got no sympathy from the judge who sentenced him to 25 years. Butler vowed to keep working until Biggs was rearrested, but age finally forced his retirement in early 1969. He died in 1970, age 57. Biggs would remain on the run for another 31 years. For a while, he was able to blend in as a suburban Melbourne, Australia carpenter living with his wife and three sons. But a newspaper story in 1969 blew his cover, and he was forced to flee, first by ship to Panama and then by plane to Brazil. In a pre-9-11 world, he was able to use a forged passport to complete this escape. Both journalists in Scotland Yard eventually located him, but a 1974 attempt to extradite him failed when it was revealed that his pregnant girlfriend was carrying his child. He avoided removal to Great Britain, but his wife Charmaine immediately filed for divorce. She initially supported herself and her two sons by selling her story for £65,000, her eldest son having been killed in 1971 at the age of 10 in an automobile accident. She educated herself and made a living in the publishing industry and even kept in touch with her ex-husband. Big scratched out a living in Brazil by hosting parties in his home, charging tourists to visit, and hear his various mostly embroidered tales of his criminal exploits. In 1978, he collaborated with former Sex Pistols Steve Jones and Paul Cook on the single No One Is Innocent, the song reaching number seven on the UK charts, a testament to Big's celebrity. He dodged another bullet in 1981 when a group of British ex-military kidnapped him from a Rio de Janeiro restaurant and forced him onto a yacht intent on any country that had an extradition treaty with the UK. But the boat suffered mechanical difficulties and had to be rescued by the Barbadian Coast Guard. Under the circumstances, the government of Barbados refused to extradite him and Biggs was returned to Rio where tourists continued to pay him 200 pounds for a visit. He also started to pump out books, as well as additional songs with German and Brazilian punk rock bands. Despite an extradition treaty that was finalized in 1998 between the UK and Brazil, and an immediate British request for Biggs's extradition, a Brazilian court rejected the application and granted Biggs residency for life. By then, all of the train robbers were either deceased or out of prison. A change in the law allowed parole in Britain after a third of a sentence was served, and some sentences were also reduced on appeal. The prevailing belief that the robbers' sentences were excessive began to permeate the judicial system. By 1978, all of the participants in the robbery were out of prison, including Bruce Reynolds. Unfortunately for William Bowl who Reynolds even publicly stated that he had never met and had nothing to do with the robbery. He contracted brain cancer and died in prison in 1970. Engineer Jack Mills never went back to driving trains, suffering neurological and emotional damage, and died of leukemia also in 1970, his family embittered by the celebrity of the train robbers. David Whitby, also said to have been traumatized by the incident, died of a heart attack in 1972, aged 32. Only a fraction of the robbery cash was ever recovered, most of it paid to solicitors or stolen by other criminals asked to safeguard the money during the perpetrator's imprisonment. Although the train robbers never served anywhere near the time of their original sentences, 
most either reoffended or suffered tragedies of one form or another. Charlie Wilson, upon his release, continued working in the criminal underworld and was suspected of both cocaine smuggling and money laundering. He was shot to death in 1990 in his Marbella, Spain villa in a murder perpetrated by a professional hitman on orders from a criminal rival who believed Wilson had informed on him to police. Roy James, Tommy Wisby, and James Hussey all went back to jail. Buster Edwards famously ran a flower stand for many years outside of Waterloo Station, believed to be the man who hit train driver Mills in 1994. Edwards was mysteriously found hanged in a garage, most likely a suicide, after it became known that he was being investigated for fraud. Supposedly, at age 63, he couldn't bear the thought of going back to prison. Only Gordon Goody, upon release, seems to not only have straightened his life out, but also was able to hold on to a substantial amount of cash. One year after his release, he relocated to the Spanish coastal resort town of Mohocar, where he became a respected member of the community, operating a popular restaurant known as the Contiki. He passed away in 2016, aged 86, in his adopted Spanish hometown. Ronnie Biggs, finally tired of life on the run and in ill health, returned voluntarily to Great Britain. He was immediately jailed and remained in prison until 2009. Having suffered several debilitating strokes, he was granted release on compassionate grounds. Severely incapacitated, he still continued to mine his train robbery celebrity. His final book on the matter released only two weeks before his death, aged 84, in 2013. His wife, Charmaine, the subject of an award-winning British television drama, died a year later. She never remarried, kept in contact with Ronnie Biggs, even visiting him in a British nursing home a year before his death. Robert Welch, the last surviving train robber, died in November of 2023. Bruce Reynolds went back to jail in 1983 for dealing amphetamines. Upon his release, he became a prolific writer and journalist. His book, Autobiography of a Thief, was published in 1995 and has remained in print ever since. It was featured in numerous documentaries and interviews, keeping alive the many fables concerning the robbery, which made him and his Confederates legendary popular culture figures in Great Britain. He passed away in 2013. Although Reynolds and the Great Train Robbery is not as well known in the United States, he lives on here in a strangely ironic twist. His son Nick is a member of the British musical group Alabama 3. One of the band's most popular songs is entitled Woke Up This Morning. It is played at the beginning of every episode of the American television show The Sopranos. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about the Great Train Robbery. Information for this podcast came from the books The Great Train Robbery, Crime of the Century by Nick Russell Pavier and Stuart Richards and The Great Train Robbery, 50th Anniversary by Bruce Reynolds and Ronnie Biggs. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, 
and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and please tell a friend about bite-sized biographies. Bye.